Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today my Bible is open in Job chapter 23. It says in verse 10 and 11, But he knows the way that I take when he has tested me, and I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. That's my prayer. That's my prayer if you are that you'll always be strong in the midst of trouble and difficulties. And I also pray that you're joyful and content in good times. So if you're having a somewhat routine, uneventful day, you can be grateful. And let me remind you, it's always a a great day to reach out to one or two people that would be blessed by your encouragement. Maybe a text, a phone call, or even a nine-course dinner dropped off at their door. You can text me uh, for the address here at the studio. But I'm joyful to be back in our study, in our study of Exodus with David Wheaton. He is the host of the Christian Worldview. You can go to the ChristianWorldview.org. It's a very popular show, and it should be the Christian Worldview radio program, where the mission is to sharpen the biblical worldview of Christians and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Today, we return to our series entitled, How Epic Exodus Displays the Awesome God. So, David, how is the ice looking on the lake you live on? Well, it's getting to be spring, and the fish houses are all now off, and we're changing seasons here in Minnesota. That's all a good thing in my book. It is. It is. We love yeah. our seasons up here. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to jumping into Exodus 24 through 26 today, but let's before we do that, let's just do a, a little recap of what we did last time, which was Exodus 21 and 23. Yeah, we covered a few chapters last time uh, in Exodus, and we're, we're now we're after the, the Ten Commandments. That's that key chapter in Exodus that everyone should know where to go to find the, the Ten Commandments. It's Exodus chapter 20. Well, then in Exodus chapter 21, if you're reading, you're thinking, wow, there's a whole lot of laws and rules and regulations here. Well, basically what that is is just an expansion of what the Ten Commandments uh, is to all the various scenarios. It's like in our legal system. We don't it's not just, you know, you, you shall not murder. There's all different kinds of murder. So like it says in Exodus chapter 21, verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Then now here's a caveat. But if he did not lie in wait for him, what wasn't premeditated, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will point you a place to which he may flee. Verse 14, however, a man, if a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, uh, then you shall not take him from my altar. You may die. So there's just different degrees of thou shalt not murder, you know, like premeditated, premeditated versus accidental versus careless that need to be uh, need to be listed out because that's the reality of our life. It's not always just so cut and dried. Now, one more interesting thing that we didn't talk about last week from from these laws in Exodus 21 is is one that supports the the pro life movement. It says in verse 22, if men struggle with each other, so two people are fighting, and a woman gets struck who is with child so that she gives birth prematurely, if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty 
life for life, eye for eye, you know, tear, tooth for tooth. You've seen, you've heard that that phrase before. But it goes to show that the unborn baby is considered a human being. It wasn't just a, a cluster of cells. It was considered a human being, and God wanted to protect that life. So th those are important laws that were kind of teased out in Exodus 21. But then we also talked about the idea, would it be better if, like, our country used all these laws as Old Testament Israel does? You have to remember there's a, there was a moral law like the Ten Commandments, there was a civil law, and there was a ceremonial law. So should the moral law be used in our laws today? Now, it's, it's interesting to consider this because, as Scripture says in Revelation 20, Christ is going to return to reign someday for a thousand years. And so he's going to reign perfectly and in righteousness. He's going to establish and implement laws with truth and grace. Now, these laws from the Old Testament, Bill, th these are laws from God. And we know that God is good and right all the time. Therefore, his laws are good and right all the time. And the degree to which a nation establishes God's law and wisely implements them is directly proportional to how that nation will be blessed. And you can just look back in our history. Think about the removal of everything related to God and all things biblical in our country, the Ten Commandments on the walls of schools, and ask yourself whether we are better off and our children are better off by not seeing the law of God in the walls of the school. And the answer is they are not better off. Uh, society is more chaotic. Society has wandered further away from God by not implementing his, his laws uh, into our society. Now, that doesn't mean that we necessarily need to implement the punishments or the consequences for the law as the nation of Israel did. You know, if, if a son is rebellious, you're to stone him. doesn't mean you have to do that in a very wooden manner, but certainly God's laws are good and right. It would be good for a nation to follow them. Mm -hmm. Great points, David. All right, maybe you can talk a little bit about the, and I think it's at the end of chapter 23, why does God preview the conquest of the promised land 39 years in advance. Yeah, so you remember, we touched on this a little bit last time, but I think it's important to, to get a little more into this because, again, they're only, I think, 11 months into their journey from Egypt now. They're going to the promised land, which is modern-day Israel. They're going to take this land. That land is controlled by God-rejecting peoples. And so they have a long way to go. It's not a very far distance, but because of their disobedience, God's going to have them wander for 40 years. And none of the generation... Uh, at least the older generation that left Egypt is going to make it into the promised land because of their disobedience. But it's important to look at things. When Scripture re repeats itself, it's important to notice that. And so in Exodus 23, toward the end of that chapter, uh, God says, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place, the promised land, which I have prepared for you. Be on your guard before him, the angel, and his voice. Obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries." And so, again, this is something that's been repeated as we've discussed and gone through Exodus. There's, there's blessing if we obey God, and there's consequence if we don't. And by the way, this angel is just not any angel, because it says there in verse 21, don't be rebellious towards him. He will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. There's no angel, there's no regular angel, so to speak, that has that particular description. This is actually Jesus Christ himself 
who is a pre-incarnate uh, you know, version or uh, appearance of Christ that's going to lead the people. And so the question is, why is it so hard for us to obey? Just bringing this into today, why does this need to be repeated so much? I mean, we, we, we should know this, right? It, it goes well with us when we obey God. Don't be rebellious. And the reason is we have an unredeemed flesh, our, our body, something about our, our flesh wants to rule ourselves and not have God rule. That's what we're constantly battling against. We want our way, not God's way. We want to rule, not God. But as believers, we should know that when we do obey God, we always have a sense of deep peace and satisfaction and contentment when we obey God. And God's going to do all these things for the nation of Israel if if they obey. And it's the same thing for us today. We need to realize that when we obey God and His Word, things will go well for us. doesn't mean we don't have trials, but even in the midst of trials, we'll have the perspective, we'll have the hope, we'll have the peace that God gives, even living in our fallen world. Yeah, it's so encouraging. All right, let's move on to chapter 24 and how, uh, David, is the covenant of the law between God and the people established? Yeah, well, we've talked about this idea of covenant in the past, and a covenant is just basically an agreement made between two parties. And so the covenant here is between God and, and the nation of Israel. And the covenant of the law, after God's given now, the Ten Commandments, and then all the the kind of the, the the working out of those commandments and all the different laws, God actually institutes a covenant. Here's my law. Now, let's make an agreement that you're going to keep it. And so God calls up, you're at, they're at Mount Sinai again, just to remind ourselves, and God calls up Moses and Aaron, his brother Aaron, and 70 elders of Israel. And it says in verse 3 of chapter 24, that Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Mm-hmm. And then skipping down to verse 7, it says, then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they again affirm all the Lord has spoken, we will do. So basically what's going on here is that this is saying, God saying, look, I gave you the law. We need to make a covenant that you're going to keep this. And so Moses had heard from God. He recounted it verbally to the people, and then he wrote it down and read it to the people. And then their response was, we're going to obey. They were so overwhelmed by what they had seen in the mountain, the lightning, the flashings, and just God's presence descending on Mount Sinai. It was truly awesome in in the true definition of the word. Now, you have to remember that within 40 days from now, they're going to be making the golden calf, okay? So this this obedience that they're, they're, they're vowing is not going to last very long, but this is why God is making the covenant. Now, very importantly, Bill, this covenant, like all covenants in Scripture, is, is ratified or certified through the shedding of blood. And if you fast forward through the to the New Testament, right into Hebrews 9, it says this very well-known verse. Most Christians have heard this verse— and said, according to the law, one may, may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, before that verse, it's actually referencing in Hebrews 9 what's taking place here in Exodus chapter 24. It's amazing how the Old Testament and New Testament are just linked right with each other. 
And so if you think of some of the, the covenants or some of the major moments uh, across Scripture, well, let's say Passover, we covered that earlier. Well, that was the last plague, and it was the Passover. The angel passed over the houses of those who had the blood applied to the doorposts. Again, blood applied to the doorposts, avoiding God's wrath. The covenant of the law right here. Again, blood actually was sprinkled on the people to ratify this covenant of the law. You think about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. They were constantly shedding animals' blood to make atonement for their sin. And, of course, the greatest example of all is Christ just didn't die in the New Testament for us. He didn't die a natural death. No, he died a violent, bloody death. In other words, the blood came out of him so that we might be covered in Christ's blood so we can be forgiven. In other words, it's important to remember that, that, that Jesus— died like a lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. His blood was applied to the mercy seat, which we'll get into next, and that's a picture of what was taking place. That's a fulfillment, actually, of what was taking place in the Old Testament when the tabernacle was erected and the high priest would go in once a year to, to sprinkle that blood on, on, the, on the mercy seat to make atonement with God. So the blood is a very, very important, critical thing to understand in Scripture. David, I'm going to take a break, but I want to come back and talk about a little bit more about that scene and what it might have looked like when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. That whole scene is fascinating to me. David Wheaton is my guest. He is the host of The Christian Worldview. You can learn more about David in his uh, radio show and his writings at thechristianworldview.org. Be right back. ChristianWorldview.org, and we're back into our series on Exodus. It's called How Epic Exodus Displays the Awesome God. This is a series that's been going on for a while. We also uh, started with a series on Genesis, and when we get through the Bible, I will give David a break. That's the plan. So, David, let's just go back to this scene. Uh, and what, what did that scene look like when Moses went up to, to the uh, to Mount Sinai? You know, I think one of the things that's so important to understand is how, yes, we're made in the image of God, but how different God is from us, that that he is the king, he is the creator, he is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient. And you get that picture here at the, toward the end of Exodus 24, when, when Moses goes up on the mountain, it says in verse 16, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. So can you imagine just Moses there for six days watching all this? It was just, it's, it's incomprehensible. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel who are down below at the base of the mountain, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the first of two trips for Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. The first one, he went to get the law. He comes down. The people have already corrupted themselves. They're worshiping the, the golden calf, which we're going to get into in a future week. And then he goes back up again for another. So he gets two trips up. But this is truly the awesome God here. And, and he's going to get the, the law and the commandments written on stone. That's that's where we get the, the phrase, you know, write it on stone. And it's interesting to note that God's laws weren't just given verbally, 
You know, they could easily be forgotten or, or, or changed, but they are written down in stone so they would be remembered and not erased. And so th this is the the beginning of of having a a part part of what he received by the way and going up and getting the law was also the instructions for what was going to be created called the tabernacle. This was the precursor to the temple. This is going to be the place where for the next 39 years they would basically go from campsite to campsite and they had this portable structure called the tabernacle. It's where they would make sacrifices, where where the presence of God would be, where the holy the, the high priest would go into to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. This was incredibly important. This is the start of their really their their sacrificial, their their worship life for the nation of Israel. And God's going to give the instructions for how to build that tabernacle in the very next chapter, in chapter 25. Yeah, incredibly specific. I know we'll get into that. Uh, what was the one of the first things that they were supposed to be constructed for the tabernacle? Yeah, so literally for several chapters here, you know, Exodus 25, I don't remember exactly, but you know, probably through about chapter 31, so four or five chapters, God is giving very specific instructions for all the different elements of the tabernacle. So he starts out in, in verse uh, chapter 25 by saying, tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution and raise from them gold and silver and bronze and scarlet material. And I'm summarizing here, goat hair, ram skins, all these different materials that will be used. And it says in verse eight, let them construct a sanctuary or tabernacle for me that I may dwell among them. And then he says, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, you shall construct it. So you think, well, this seems sort of kind of random or kind of odd, but the Bible, God doesn't devote about eight chapters or whatever it is in the Bible in a row to the specific uh, way that this, this tabernacle is to be constructed, where the various elements are going to be, uh, if it weren't so serious to him. This is the place that God's presence is going to be. This is how he wants to be worshipped. And of course, he's God. He determines how we approach him. And so to answer your question, the first thing that's mentioned to be constructed is what? It's the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark mm -hmm. of the Covenant is is a is basically like a rectangular wood box. It says in Exodus 25, construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high. So this is about 45 inches long by 27 inches wide by about 27 inches high. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. And then on verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold for the, the lid of the ark. And it says in verse 22, there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between these two cherubim, these two angel-like figures who would be kind of have their wings spread over the, the lid of the ark. And uh, the base of the top of the lid would be like this mercy seat where the high priest would come in, you'd, they'd sacrifice an animal. Uh, take some of its blood and, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat to make atonement. Again, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Uh, the blood symbolizes death, for the wages of sin is death. And so this is a really amazing—it was in the most holy place, holy of holies, in this, this tabernacle. And this is where mercy was given. You know, the definition of mercy, Bill, is not being given what we deserve. You know, justice is being given what we deserve— but God gives us mercy, not being given what we deserve. And so there comes the high priest in once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
the law is in the is in the in the ark of the covenant the law of like this is god's standard you've broken it the presence of god is above the mercy seat and so the blood comes between the broken law and the holy god to make atonement for the sins of the i mean it's just an unbelievable picture if you just think about that for a second it's it's the mediator just like Christ was the is the one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So this foreshadowed the, the blood of Christ being the mediator between the broken law of God and the holy God above. Mm. David Wheaton is my guest. We're continuing our series on Exodus. David, what uh, was the difference between the holy of holies and the holy place? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So if, if you have a study Bible at home, you can probably look into these chapters, Exodus 24, 25, somewhere in there. You might see a picture of what the tabernacle looked like. So it was rectangularly shaped. It was about 150 feet long by 70 feet, uh, 75 feet wide. That was the entire perimeter of it. And then there, and there was like a seven and a half foot uh, curtain going all around the whole tabernacle. And it was open to the sky. So you'd enter from the east side, and the first thing you'd come to was this altar of burnt offering. That's where the, the sacrifices would, would be made of, of the animals, and there was this is a bloody place. And then you come to the—after that, you'd work further west, and you come to the bronze laver. That was for washing before entering the one portion of the tabernacle that was covered. And the covered portion of the tabernacle, sometimes called the tent, was where you had the holy place and the holy of holies. And there was be, the division between those two places was a veil. We don't have time to get into that today. That was was torn in two, right? When Christ died, that's very significant. But the holy place had had a table in there where bread was laid out, and it had a lampstand, and it had an altar mm. of incense. And the the priest would go in there regularly, but only one time of year would he go through that veil into the the inner sanctum, I guess you could call it, to the the Holy of Holies, not without blood, by the way, again, with blood. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, in a covered area, Ark of the Covenant, God's presence in there, above the mercy seat of the Ark, between the two cherubim, with the law inside the Ark. And so th this was just uh, the, the tabernacle complex, I guess you could call it, was portable at the time. Everything had to be carried as they go from campsite to campsite in, in the wilderness. Nothing was put on wagons. Nothing could be touched. You couldn't touch the Ark of the Covenant with hands. had to be carried on poles. And, of course, the tabernacle would later turn into, at, during the time of Solomon, the building of the first temple, which was a permanent structure in Jerusalem. But the tabernacle was the precursor to that, and this is the place where God's presence was, where the people of Israel came to worship him, according to the terms which he had established. Once again, David, you've done your homework. Are we going to get into uh, the representation of the veil in Exodus 26, maybe next time? Yeah, I think that would probably be good. That's a significant portion of it. We're kind of going through this pretty fast. This is an overview, yeah. but I encourage your listeners really to read this. Sometimes you think, well, why is this relevant? It is super relevant because yeah, it really shows it. who God is and what Christ actually was the fulfillment of all these types in the tabernacle. All right. I will. I can't wait till next time. Thank you so much for another great, uh, great teaching time. Appreciate it very much. Well, thank you, Bill. Yep, you bet. David Wheaton has been my guest. You can go to the ChristianWorldview.org. Learn more about David. Next up, David Mathis is going to join me in studio. He's got a new book called Rich Wounds, The Countless Treasures of the Life, Death, and Triumph of Jesus. <laughs> Thank you.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. All right, many of us are so familiar with the Easter story that it gets kind of easy to miss some of the details that help us understand its meaning and David Mathis wrote a brand new book just out called Rich Wounds, The Countless Treasures of the Life, Death, and Triumph of Jesus. And this book is going to encourage us to kind of hit the pause button and, and marvel at Jesus, who whose now glorified wounds are a sign of his unfailing love and the decisive victory that he has won. Now, this book is not only a, a great little devotional for any time of the year, but Right now, with the chapters on Holy Week and the Lenten season, it is now like the perfect time to get your hands on one. And David and his publisher have made five copies available, just so you know. So I'm going to let you listen to David talk about it. But I want you to know that five copies have been made available. And if you want to get in on the drawing, I know you know the drill. Just text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. David is the executive editor for Desiring God, and he's also a pastor at Cities Church. He's a husband and father of four, and I'm always glad to have him on. David, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Always good to be talking with you, brother. Yeah, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you very always much. represents a lot of work Th- and a lot this, of prayer. This one I'm, I'm particularly excited about because uh, <laughs> it's not that, it, strangely enough, uh, often books about Jesus don't tend to do particularly well among Christians because we think we already know about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love meditating on the glories of Christ. There are so many to be seen. And so this this book represents my heart about as much as I've had the opportunity to do yet. So I'm, I'm very thankful to have it ready and eager to share it with people here in the spring season. That's cool. When did the uh, spirit start stirring this in your heart to put this to paper? Oof, what a good question. You know, uh, in one... I mean computer. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's how it goes these days. (laughs) In one sense, in college 20 years ago, I read John Piper's book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. And he goes, it's 13 chapters with a preface, so it makes 14 total, little short chapters you can read in five minutes, and he just meditates on the glories of Christ one at a time. And I was, I was captivated as a senior and at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, and that has, that's really affected my life for the last 20 years. And so as I have gone through seminary and become a pastor and done, done some writing, I love pausing to marvel at the glories of Christ, to take the, the diamond of who he is and try to turn it and catch a different ray, a different angle mm. of his glory. And so that's shaped my life for, for 20 years. And for some time, I've, I've written little meditations here or there leading up to Christmas or to Easter. And after a while, there were enough of these, start putting them together and write a few to fill in the pieces. And, and the book was able to come together here uh, in the last year. All right, let's start with the title, Rich Wounds, the Countless Treasures of the Life, Death, and Triumph of Jesus. Let's give us a little reflection on the title. Rich Wounds. I had to convince the publisher on this because it's a strange phrase, but some of your listeners may hear the phrase and think, oh, it sounds like a hymn I grew up with. There's a hymn I grew up with, maybe you too, called Crown Him with Many Crowns. Love that. Okay, me too. It's my favorite, Bill. (laughs) And uh, it was written in 1851 by Matthew Bridges. 
Uh, each verse celebrates Jesus as Lord of life, Lord of love, Lord of years, and celebrates the many crowns. And the book of Revelation talks about the many diadems, crowns, that he is worthy of. And the second verse says, crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands and side, rich wounds, yet visible above in beauty glorified. It's an it, amazing thought. I mean, first we would think that wounds, <laughs> scars would not be part of a resurrected glorified body. But when we read the resurrection accounts in the gospel, one thing he does to doubting Thomas, to his disciples, is he says, see my hands and my feet, put your hand in my side, see the, the scars they're not gone. <laughs> They're healed, but you can still see the, the rich wounds of Christ, and they are not a defect on his glorified body. They are a glory because they exude his love. That's what the hymn celebrates, crown him the Lord of love. As we see, and I believe we will see one day on the glorified, resurrected Christ, we will see the wounds, the healed wounds and the glorious scars on his hand and feet, and on his side, and they will exude glory, love, no defect, but we will cherish those wounds by which we were healed. And so that's one reason to celebrate his his rich wounds. And another is we talk about wounds a lot these days. Uh, it's maybe not as often war wounds or physical wounds, but we, we talk about the emotional wounds that we've sustained, like a, a father wound or some trauma that's been in our life. So it, it's pretty common conversation to talk about the ways in which we've been wounded. And I know that those wounds, which many of us carry, aren't going to be magically healed by some Easter meditations on the glory of Christ. However, I, I do hope that in reflecting upon Jesus, in knowing him more, in knowing him better, there might be some indirect in immediate ways, in seeing the wounds of Christ, in knowing ourselves covered and saved and rescued by his wounds, that we would have some healing. By his wounds, Isaiah prophesied, you are healed. That's beautiful. So give us a little understanding of the way the book is laid out, because it is a devotional, and yet it's good for any time of the year. But right now, uh, with Easter ahead, it's an especially a meaningful devotional. So talk about how it's laid out. You know, the, uh, the Gospels are about 50% or so about Jesus last week. Sometimes we call this Holy Week. Uh, it's a little, little less than 50%. So there's a lot of the Gospels that are, are not about, you know, his immediate death on the cross and the resurrection, but his life, his teaching, his miracles, the signs that point to who he is. And so I wanted to start off the book with the, the first eight meditations, thinking through his life. We need to linger over his life. There is so much glory to be seen in his life. And so there I, I linger over his habits. Like what did it look like for Jesus? What were his spiritual disciplines, so to speak? Because amazingly, uh, we have more about Jesus' spiritual disciplines than anyone else in the Bible. Not that we necessarily have a lot or all that we would want in our own curiosity, but we have what God would have us to have, and we have more about Jesus than anyone else in the four Gospels. So start with lingering over his habits. Talk about his, his purpose. You know, if Jesus had a mission statement in life, what would that 
have been. We talked about what it means for Jesus to work and connecting his life with our lives. You know, he was a, a common tradesman, a worker, a mason, a carpenter. So he had a, he had a work ethic. And Jesus slept. The Son of God went to sleep just about every night of his life, <laughs> like we do. And he wept, and he walked with no trains, planes, or automobiles. And he taught, which we know about, and he discipled his men. And so uh, we spend some first, the, the first eight days lingering over the human life of Jesus. And then I, I want to turn and linger over his death. And not just a single chapter on his death, but seven meditations about various aspects of his death. And then turn and do seven meditations on various as- aspects of his resurrection, which as Christians, we're, we're very familiar with taking a day out of the year to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. But there's so much more to be there, so much glory to see in Jesus' resurrection. I really enjoyed getting to linger over that in seven different ways. And in the last eight chapters of the book, that makes 30, walk with Jesus through that final week of his life, from Palm Sunday through the Monday, Tuesday, Spy Wednesday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Resurrection Sunday. David, all right, this is a big tease. You've got, uh, you've got habits, you've got uh, the death, you've got the resurrection. Can I have a little bit more uh, content on, on maybe a sample of each? Because this is so intriguing. One thing that has been a fairly recent uh, discovery for me, if I'm going to talk about Jesus' habits, so uh, I, I do on occasion talk about spiritual disciplines. did a book on that years ago. I tend to get asked about spiritual disciplines. One thing that sticks out in Jesus' life is his pattern of retreating and reentry. And and once mm-hmm. you see it in the Gospels, you see it again and again and again that Jesus would retreat, and and often he's got his men with him. Sometimes it's by himself to pray or to the wilderness, to the mountaintop. But often he retreats with his men for prayer for meeting face-to-face, undistracted with his father, and then returns to ministry. There's this amazing pattern in his life of retreat and return. And and something that we can learn from that in our modern world with all of the devices around us constantly buzzing and notifying us, uh, how can we have moments where we retreat from that, from the noise, from the chaos, to meet with our father in his word and pray to him and then return, refreshed, renewed, with our souls restored, return to what he's called us to do in our jobs, in our families. That, that's a prominent theme in Jesus' life. And then another thing that's amazing, you know, so, I mean, Jesus didn't have, they didn't have a printing press. He didn't have his own copy of the Bible. Mm-hmm. He learned the Bible from his mama <laughs> and from hearing in the synagogue, and he put it to memory. And then the amazing thing is one time after another in Jesus' life, again and again, he is quoting Scripture. He quotes Scripture to answer Satan's temptations in the wilderness again and again as he talks to his men, as he interacts with scribes and Pharisees. Do you not know that it is written? So Jesus again and again, clearly the Word of God, even though Christ himself is the capital W, Word of God, he's the human, embodied, personal expression of the Word of God. In his humanity, he was a man shaped by God's written Word. He leaned on the Word. He quoted the Word. He had memorized the Word. And so the Word of his Father played a central role in his life. So Word is important for us Christians today. How are we getting the Bible? Is is the Bible shaping us through faithful preaching, through regular reading? Are we Word-shaped people? 
And then one other lesson would be that he taught his men to pray. We see Jesus pray. We hear him pray. He teaches his disciples how to pray. He prays in John 17 where they can hear before he goes to the cross. And so he was a man of prayer. And in our retreating rhythms of life and our reentry rhythms of life, making God's word, his word to us central with our word back to him in prayer, a part of that, part of the dynamic of relationship with God in the Christian life. We see it in Jesus, and it's something that we can take for ourselves. David, that's really, really good. And when you talk about retreat and return, those are a couple of great words. You put them together, and my mind always goes to people who would be in full-time ministry, but Mm. how would this idea apply to uh, the average pair of ears listening right now who might not be in full-time ministry? You know, just... uh, you know, pastor or not, <laughs> to be a Christian, uh, we need the Word of God. You know, we do not live by bread alone, uh, by every word that comes from the mouth of our Father. So for our faith to be sustained, you know, Christian faith, is a, it's a living, organic thing. It, it's not a past thing where we sign a card and have that put away with, but for faith to be real, it endures. It, is, it continues to be fed. It continues to live. And faith lives by God's Word. Faith comes from hearing, Paul says, and hearing from the Word of Christ. So as we live, as we feed, as our souls are informed by God's Word, whether that's personal Bible reading, whether that is listening to audio on our phones of the Bible read, or Christians discussing the Bible, or Christian preaching, or sitting under faithful preaching in our churches, or interacting in Christian life, in our churches, in small groups or life groups or whatever they're called, where other believers speak truth, Bible-informed counsel into our, into our lives, uh, God means for our souls to be sustained by His Word. And whatever occupation you're in, uh, it is, it's worth thinking through what are the patterns of your life where God's Word, not, not just the words of the world that are so many, we are so inundated by the world's words everywhere we turn. How are God's words getting into your ear and feeding your soul and helping you stay afloat uh, in the age in which you're living? That's so critical. David Mathis is my guest. His new book is called Rich Wounds. These are 30 short reflections uh, that will help you look deeper at Jesus's life, his, his very sacrificial death, and his amazing resurrection. Uh, David's been nice enough to make five copies available of his book. So if you want to jump in on the drawing for one of the copies, please do so by texting the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, the word book, 877-933-2484. David Mathis is my guest and the author of the book, Rich Wounds. We'll be right back. David Mathis with me today. He's the executive editor for DesiringGod.org. He's also a pastor at Cities Church, and he's a fantastic writer. He's written a brand new book 
and we've got five copies uh, to give away. So if you'd like to jump in on the drawing, you may do so by texting the word book to 877-933-2484. David, now we've got uh, Ash Wednesday today and Lent. I don't know if a lot of people have a real good understanding of both. Would you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I... Growing up, I, I was born and raised Southern Baptist in Spartanburg, South Carolina. You probably hear the South Carolina still in my voice some. Um, but my parents sent me to Catholic school growing up, first grade to seventh grade. So even though my Southern Baptist church didn't do Ash Wednesday or, or Lent, <laughs> I got a little bit of Ash Wednesday and Lent <laughs> growing up at the Catholic school, which it was a fantastic ed- education. We diagram sentences. I'm an editor today, and I'm thankful. Um, Ash Wednesday, this this Wednesday here, the beginning of the season called Lent. Now, Lent is just from an old English word that means spring. This is, this is an amazing thing about the Easter season. And, you know, we have all the collateral of the eggs and the bunnies that we need to push through and push to the side. Remember what it's really about, Jesus' life and death. But it is an amazing thing to coordinate the resurrection, new life, new creation of Christ with the spring. And you know what? All the more in Minnesota. I appreciate spring <laughs> all the more now that I'm a Minnesotan these last 20 years than growing up in, in South Carolina. So Ash Wednesday is officially, this is mainly a, a Western church thing, and it's not just Roman Catholic. It is also Anglican, Lutheran, Reformed churches, Congregational churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches, many churches throughout the ages. Some haven't, but many Western churches have marked an Ash Wednesday. It's not a Catholic thing alone. Ash Wednesday is the first day of the Lent season, the spring season of anticipation of the Easter feast. Now, in in America today, uh, many of us aren't very good at fasting, (laughs) And many of us aren't great at, at feasting. We just we maybe feast all the time. But if you're feasting all the time, then there's not, not much special about a feast like Christmas or Easter. And throughout history, when food was more scarce, Christians really would celebrate these feast days. And we see feast days in the Old Testament as well. This has been a part of human life for ages that Christians would celebrate feasts and would have fasts leading into the feast to anticipate and appreciate the feast all the more. And so many Christians are familiar with the season of Advent, season of preparation leading up to the feast of Christmas and the 12 days of Christmas, you know, this Christmas feast from December 25th through January 6th. Lent, it, it's a longer season. It is, it's 40 normal days, 40 non-Sundays. And then if you throw the Sundays in there, it's about 46 days. So Easter right now here on Ash Wednesday, Easter is 46 days away, <laughs> 40, 40 regular days, that's weekdays and Saturday, plus the Sundays, 46 days away. Mm-hmm. And Ash Wednesday is the official marking of that, of that Easter season. And I, I think throughout history, I'd, probably the way it goes, why it's a 40-day season, that is probably honoring Jesus 40 days in the wilderness leading up to his ministry that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talks about his 40 days in the wilderness, and Christians have sought to to echo that 40 days, not with a 40-day utter fast, you know, like Jesus did, but with some fasting elements in the 40 days leading up to the, the Easter feast celebration at the end. 
David, when I grew up as well, I was uh, at a Catholic school, and so I understood with uh, great importance Ash Wednesday and the Lenten season. And I don't know if Protestants or evangelicals, um, have they have they missed some of the beauty of this Lenten season just because they might not have grown up with it or they might not have paid attention to it the way it was introduced to us? And th- that may be the case. You know, it really is church by church. And uh, in, in coming to Minnesota, I came to a Baptist church in downtown Minneapolis, Bethlehem Baptist, that did a amazing job of celebrating the Advent season. And then in particular at Bethlehem, we really zeroed in on, you know, quote unquote, Holy Week, that week right before leading up to Easter with Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and the waiting over Holy Saturday and the celebration of Easter Sunday. And so it, there are there are variances from church to church, from region to region. I do think there's a great opportunity here. And sometimes, maybe in our youth, maybe before God gives the grace of new birth and gives this Holy Spirit and changes our, our desires and appetites, it, these things can feel like a burden, like an obligation, like, oh, no, it's it, it's Lent. I, I remember being at, at Catholic school growing up, and, and the students sometimes would, would regret, it's Lent. Now I have to eat fish on Fridays or w- whatever it was. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and the main terms I would hear, I'm not saying that the, the children in the Catholic school were the best representatives of the tradition, you know. Um, but they, it, the focus was mainly on what are you going to give up? What right. are you going to give up? And there may be something to it. Fasting is a kind of giving up. And yet... I want to push through just the language and flavor of giving up and think, how can this be a season of opportunity? How can this be a season of greater focus, greater joy, getting? (laughs) I want to get more God. I want to get more Jesus in this season. And if this ancient tradition called Lent and occasions like Ash Wednesday would prompt something in us to take a focused approach to time, sometimes it really helps to do new initiatives, new disciplines, new habits in our life to, to kind of zero off a certain period instead of just saying, well, from now until the day I die, I'm going to do things differently. Instead say, how about these 40 days? What, what might God call me to over these next 46 days, this month and a half leading up to Easter? Is there something that's missing in my life? Am, am, am I not lingering in the Bible like I'd like? Am I rushing through prayer? Is there no fasting? To think of this as an opportunity to access God's grace through the means he's given us and think what what might become a fresh habit in my life from now until Easter? And then how might it continue? If it's giving us greater joy to have more of Christ, more of Jesus, not just an empty obligation— but a full opportunity that's, that's a catalyst for joy in our lives, then those things might continue after the celebration of Easter as well. David, how was it so perfect I had this time you come on the show today? <laughs> well, I, I think Rose and I talked a while ago, and I said, well, you know, Ash Wednesday's coming up. I'd love to talk <laughs> about Ash Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, because what you just shared is so important, and I love the fact that you're saying... We all could use changes and we could do some um, reflection as to what we'd like to do differently. And let's look at a 40-day chunk of time, this time called Lent, and then hopefully it continues after that. That, I think, is a a doable uh, step we can all take. Yes, that's right. So 
uh, congratulations again on your book, um, Rich Wounds. And if you uh, want to get in on the drawing, David is nice enough to make five copies available for us. And you can text the word book over to 877-933-2484. And again, the book is entitled Rich Wounds, The Countless Treasures of the Life, Death, and Triumph of Jesus. So... If I could add one more yeah, thing, please. Uh, the book, though, I, I I would love for it to help people through the the spring season, the Lent season yeah. on the way to Easter. It does not have forty six devotions in it. <laughs> it only has of, of thirty. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, you know, if you don't already have a copy, or you don't already have a plan today here on Ash Wednesday, uh, you know, the forty six days is a long time. And so, don't give up on Lent if your plan's not yet in place. And if and, and don't feel like it's got to be something that is necessarily every day. I have had a Bible reading plan for years that's 25 days a month, and that has been so good for my soul that if something happens and I miss, I can catch up, or if I stay caught up, I can get on ahead. And I, I'd love for these 30 devotions to be something that help people through this season, not that you would never miss a day, but if you do, there's grace for that, and there's mm-hmm. 30 of these med- meditations to spread out over the season. Yeah, David, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's always a delight to be with you. Thank you, Bill. You bet. David Mathis has been my guest, and once again, his book is called Rich Wounds, The Countless Treasures of the Life, Death, and Triumph of Jesus. He made five copies available, so text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Coming up next, if you have a prodigal in your life, you're not going to want to miss this. We're doing church, and coming up next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.